0: Today on Penn's exchange, the origins of wealth and inequality, Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today, we will be joined by Odette Galor. He is the Herbert H. Goldberger Professor of Economics at Brown University. He is an elected foreign member of Academia Europea and an elected fellow of the Econometric Society. He is a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and at the Center for Economic Studies. Furthermore, he is the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Economic Growth. Editor of the Journal of Population of Economics and co editor of Macroeconomic Dynamics. Professor Galor's research has focused on improving our understanding of the deep rooted factors behind economic growth across the entire course of human history. Welcome, Odet.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: The journey of humanity starts almost 300,000 years ago with the appearance of the first early modern humans in Africa and continues to our day two major events have shaped our voyage. The Neolithic transition, that transformed nomadic hunter-gatherer societies into settled agricultural societies. And the Industrial Revolution, which marked the end of the Malthusian Trap, enabling humanity to exponentially increase its population size and improve overall quality of life. What explains all of it? Professor Odette Galor will be joining us to discuss his most recent book, The Journey of Humanity, and guide us into this exciting and ambitious endeavor. I want to start by discussing the general motivations behind your research first. Why do the social sciences need a general or unified theory of economic growth? What is wrong with solely focusing on the factors behind modern growth?
1: So if we consider the the evolution of uh, human societies in the past uh, 300,000 years, it appears that this uh, evolutionary process is associated with two fundamental mysteries. What I defined as the mystery of growth, namely, what is the origin of this dramatic transformation in living standards that occurred in the past 200 years after literally hundreds of thousands of years of stagnation, and the mystery of inequality, namely, what is the origin of this vast inequality in living standards across countries and regions of the world. Now, in order to address this important question about the roots of inequality across the globe, we have to resolve first the mystery of economic growth. And why is it so? At the time of the transition from stagnation to growth, nearly 200 200 years ago, we see dramatic transformation in living standards in some regions of the world and the prolongation of stagnation in other regions of the world. And as a result of it, an enormous inequality is emerging in the world economy. Now, naturally, key to the understanding of inequality today is the understanding of what forces brought about an early transition from stagnation to growth in some regions of the world, and the prolongation of the Malthusian epoch in other regions of the world. And therefore, we would like to tackle the issue of inequality across the globe. If we would like to design policies that could mitigate inequality across the globe, we must have a theory that will establish the forces that govern the process of development over most of human existence, and ultimately led into this differential timing of the takeoff from stagnation to growth and to the inequality as we see today. In the absence of a unified theory, we simply focus on the modern growth regime. We are already in a society in which certain inequality is present. But this inequality, as I said, is originated in the distant past, is originated in forces that led into this differential development process across the globe. And unless we identify these forces, we will not be in a position to mitigate inequality across the globe today.
0: Before we go in details, I would like to ask uh, about the general argument of the book. You speak of the cause of change as the main structural factors behind growth in the long run, population size, population composition, and technological change, and how their interaction enables humanity to focus on building human capital that will end up leading to the modern world. So, would you mind elaborating on how these factors interact and why they are important?
1: Absolutely. So, in the course of human development, 99%. 0.9% of human existence is within what I defined as the Malthusian Epoch. This is a period that is characterized by very interesting dualism. On the one hand, we see stagnation in income per capita and stagnation in life expectancy. But on the other hand, we see great dynamism in the context of technological progress, population growth, and human adaptation. So at any point in time technological progress is very, very slow, population growth is very, very small, and human adaptation is very slow. But over 300,000 year period these gradual processes that are occurring at a very, very slow pace are leading the world from a stone-tool technology that existed 300,000 years ago to steam engine technology in the eve of industrialization. These processes are leading the world from about 2.5 million people that lived on planet Earth in the eve of the agricultural revolution 12,000 years ago to about 1 billion people that are living on planet Earth in the midst of industrialization, 400-fold increase. And this leads to a gradual adaptation of the human population to the environment in which humans are operating. So during this period, we see this reinforcing interaction between what I defined in the book as the wheels of change. First, population size. Second, the composition of the population, or the adaptation of the population. And third, technological progress. So humanity starts somewhere in Africa nearly 300,000 years ago. Some people that are operating somewhere in Africa during this time period. Given the fact that humans are equipped with this powerful brain, humans are advancing the technological frontier very, very slowly, but nevertheless at a steady pace. So we move from one stone tool technology to another stone tool technology. And as technology advances and resources are expanding, more people can be supported. Parents have more resources, more of their children survive. They can give birth to more of them than before. And as a result of it, the size of the human population increases. But the increases in the size of the human population permits further technological progress. And further technological progress permits more people to be supported, and permits the adaptation of the human population. So over this 300,000-year period, we see this reinforcing interaction between the size of the human population, the composition of the human population, and technological progress. As I said, at any point in time, it appears that the scale of this change is relatively small. But over 300,000 year period, we move gradually from stone tool technologies to steam engine technologies. And then, at a certain point, the technological environment in which people operate start to change more and more rapidly. Initially, the pace is so small that the demand for education, or the demand for, for human capital in, in any environment, is, is very small, and as a result of it, we do not see investment in literacy, numeracy, education, and more generally human capital for technological purposes. But in the eve of industrialization and in the aftermath of industrialization, the technological landscape is changing so rapidly that education becomes essential in the ability of individuals to cope with this rapidly changing technological environment. So we reach a critical point in which suddenly there is massive investment in education. But people have limited resources. They have limited budget. Now, in order to support this investment in education, they have to economize in other items in their budget. One of them is their own consumption. But to begin with, consumption is very close to subsistence. So they cannot economize on this budget. So what do they need? What do they do? They reduce the number of children. This allows them to invest in the education of their children, but at the same time, it forces a massive decline in fertility. And this is critical because for the first time in human history, technological progress is no longer counterbalanced by population growth. Namely, the growth process is freed from the counterbalancing effect of population, and the world is sailing into the modern growth regime. So to a large extent, this is the resolution of the mystery of growth that I underlined earlier. Namely, over 300,000-year period, we see this reinforcing interaction between population size, population composition, and technological progress, but technological progress is always counterbalanced by an increase in population, and consequently, income per capita is fluctuating without any trend for a long period of time. But then, when we reach industrialization, and it has nothing to do with with industrialization per se, but with the pace of technological progress, investment in human capital becomes very important to navigate this stormy technological environment. Fertility starts to decline and the growth process, for the first time in human history, is freed from the counterbalancing effect of population and consequently technological progress, human capital formation, and the fertility decline are permitting the world to move into the modern growth regime.
0: Economic historians have talked a lot about the Industrial Revolution, of course, but You say by discussing why this occurred first in England and in the 18th century, we may be confusing the forest for the trees. While not, of course, irrelevant, the details of where and why of the Industrial Revolution are not what matters the most in explaining the modern world. Is this a right reading of your book? It is a very
1: accurate reading of the book. And to a large extent, I argued that what mattered for the transition from stagnation to growth is the acceleration in the pace of technological progress rather than the particular form of industrialization that occurred during this time period. Namely, to a large extent, the book is arguing that what is unique about the Industrial Revolution is not industrial technology, is basically the age of progress. The fact that we see enormous amount of progress in many different dimensions and this progress is ultimately contributing to the need for investment in human capital. It ultimately triggering the fertility decline and is permitting the world to move into the modern growth regime.
0: Was economic growth always inevitable? Or let me elaborate that. What could have happened that maybe have impeded the phase transition to this post-Maltusian world? Right. So that's a very interesting
1: question. And the viewpoint that I'm advancing in unified growth theory generally and in the journey of humanity most recently is that, to a large extent, we can view the growth process as an inevitable byproduct of this interaction between the wheels of change, conditional on the fact that human Humans have originated in Africa somewhere 300,000 years ago. And conditional on the fact that humans are equipped with the human brain, humans can innovate. And these innovations, as I said, is leading into larger people and more adaptable people. And these more adaptable people and larger people are innovating even further. And this further innovation contributes to more a, a greater population and greater adapted population. And this is critical because we see a gradual increase in the supply of innovations, a gradual increase in the demand for innovations, and in the course of human history, deals wheels of change, sooner or later, must reach a critical point beyond which, as I said earlier, education, becomes essential so as to navigate this rapidly changing technological environment. This triggers the the fertility decline and, ultimately, the transition from stagnation to growth. And perhaps we should keep it in the context of a metaphor that I uh, advance in the book. Think about another phase transition that we are all very familiar with, phase transition that occurs in nature between liquid and gas. As we boil water in a tea kettle, initially the water remains in a liquid form. But ultimately, once we reach a critical point, we see this transition from water to gas. Very similar, in the course of human history, we see that technological progress becomes faster and faster and faster and faster over most of human existence. This change in technology does not have any impact on technological on ed, investment in education, but once we reach a critical point, education investments start to take place, the fertility decline is taking place, and we see this phase transition very similarly to the phase transition that we see in nature. And in this respect, to a large extent, one can argue that this transition is inevitable, since that the wheels of change operated throughout human history, it's possible that the Industrial Revolution could have occurred 1,000 years earlier or 1,000 years later, but the wheels of change must have resulted ultimately in a technological landscape that is changing rapidly enough so as to bring about investment in education, fertility decline, and transition to the modern growth regime.
0: Going back to the beginning of humanity's journey, I would like to focus on the first. First, would you define this as a phase transition, the Neolithic Revolution? And what explains it? Because it certainly can be puzzling to explain it when we factor that the quality of life proxied by the number of calories ingested was larger for hunter-gatherers rather than for agricultural settlers.
1: Right, so that's a fascinating question, and it's a source of a great confusion among, uh, among non-economists. And the reason is the following so when individuals are reviewing the data about the transition in the quality of life from hunter-gatherer stages of life to agricultural society they detect declining life expectancy they detect a decline in the quality of uh, nutrition that individuals are exposed to and they detect a greater work effort than existed before. So some argue that the transition to agriculture perhaps was the biggest mistake of, uh, of, uh, of the human species. But this is <clears throat> a misunderstanding of the evidence. In what sense? The evidence is based on perhaps some, uh, some archaeological record that occurred maybe 2,000 years before the transition to agriculture, 3,000 years before the transition to agriculture, and perhaps a few thousand years after the agricultural revolution. We don't have continuous record that shows us what happened precisely at the time when the transition took place. Now, what happens, in fact, in the course of human history? Humans are residing in Africa, and at a certain point, they start to disperse out of Africa 60 to 90,000 years ago, and they start to populate planet Earth. And they gradually populate every empty niche, every virgin niche that exists on planet Earth. As they do so, at a certain point, there are no more free niches to be occupied. And as a result of it, they start to bang it into one another, and resources per hunter-gatherer tribes are gradually declining. And they get to a point in which, unless they innovate, and unless they learn how to domesticate plants and animals, they are bound, or some of them are bound to become extinct. And in order to avoid this extinction, they do the inevitable step. Namely, they innovate, They learn how to domesticate plants, they learn how to domesticate animals, and they learn how to extract from one acre of land nearly 100 times more resources than were extracted by hunter-gatherers. And this ultimately permits the human population to remain, in fact, at the same standard of living for a long period of time, rather than further declining and ultimately reaching an extinction. Namely, the important element to understand is that the transition is entirely rational. Those individuals that are taking the step of moving from being hunter-gatherers to agriculturalists are in fact not worse off. What we see in the archaeological record is the standard of living 2,000 years earlier relative to the standard of living 2,000 years later. That's true, there is a difference between the two, but at the time, of the transition there is a gradual decline in the quality of life of hunter gatherers and those that are taking the step and move to agriculture are not worse off in fact if they wouldn't have taken the step they would become they would have become extinct
0: humanity's journey is not just about growth but also about the adversity and inequality the second part of your book is all about it the way i read it it intends to integrate the often studied deep factors of economic growth into your paradigm. After all, a unified theory of growth, as you said, must account for all factors. And how such interaction leads to delays in given societies from escaping the Malthusian trap. However, one question arose to me, which is linked to our previous questions. Is it possible to achieve a situation by which some societies escape the Malthusian trap, but others don't and remain trapped? Or inevitably, the escape sooner or later encompasses the whole world?
1: Right. So when we think about the transition from stagnation to growth and the wheels of change, they're rotating and reinforcing one another in the course of human history. But the pace of this rotation may differ greatly across the globe. Namely, some societies are blessed with with geographical endowments that permit the support of a larger population and as a result of its faster technological progress Other societies are residing in in regions of the world that are not conducive to population growth and ultimately technological progress. And in general, over the course of human history, we see that the geographical endowment is leading into institutional characteristics, cultural characteristics, and other characteristics that are expediting the transition from stagnation to growth in some regions of the world and are delaying the transition from stagnation to growth in other regions of the world. So overall, what we see is this differential timing of the transition from stagnation to growth across the globe and the emergence of enormous inequality in the standard of living in the past 200 years. Namely, as I said earlier, when we think about the inequality as observed today, much of it is originated in the course of the past 200 years, and the reason that it is originated in the past 200 years is based on conditions that existed very much in the, deep, in the distant past, conditions that ultimately allowed some societies to take off early, other societies to take off late, and led into the divergence. So this is, again, related to your initial question why do we need a unified theory of economic growth? Unless we have a unified theory of economic growth, we will not be able to identify the forces that led into earlier transition in some parts of the world and latest transition in other parts of the world, and we will not be able to harness these forces to expedite the transition of developing countries into uh, the most advanced uh, societies in the world. So generally, the the unified growth theory suggests that we will see divergence across the globe based on initial conditions, but ultimately, over time, it is simply a matter of time till other societies will join uh, and uh, will will, uh, experience similar transition. But naturally, this can take decades, centuries, And perhaps beyond that, and consequently, that's the importance of policy that is basically targeting these initial conditions so as to expedite the transition of developing countries into uh, the modern growth regime.
0: Previously, you were talking about migration out of Africa from humanity. And you have discussed a lot of this in your own research about it. Could you elaborate a bit? on why population diversity may end up affecting other types of diversity and why this is important?
1: So when we think about inequality as we see it across the globe, and we try to understand the roots of inequality, we can peel different layers of influence about this inequality. We can think about the role of colonialism, the role of institutions, the role of culture, and the role of geography. When we explore the role of geography, we can move back as early as 12,000 years ago to the eve of the Neolithic Revolution, the eve of the agricultural revolution. But in fact, some of the inequality that we see across the globe today, and according to my estimate, nearly one-fifth of the variation in income per capita across the globe today can be traced to events that occurred at the time of the exodus of anatomically modern human from Africa 60 to 90,000 years ago. And why is it so? So at a time where humans are migrating out of Africa, humans cannot possibly carry all the spectrum of diversity that existed in the African population. And why is it so? The African population is limited in size. The departing population is limited in size. And as a result of it, we have a sampling from a limited distribution that is not representative. So some of the diversity that existed in Africa, whether it's cultural, linguistic, behavioral, phenotypic, is lost in this migratory process. Now, importantly, this migratory process is not a a simple process. It's a sequential process. People are migrating out of Africa, and they settle a nearby region, say the Fertile Crescent. They settle there for a long period of time. They grow in size till the carrying capacity of the environment cannot contain them. And then a subgroup leaves the Fertile Crescent and migrate either west to the Europe or east to Asia. And this process continues sequentially, and the further people are migrating, the less diverse is the human population. Now, why is it so important? It is important because diversity is associated with conflicting effects on productivity. On the one hand, diversity is associated with cross-fertilization of ideas, complementarity of traits, and this is conducive for innovations and productivity. But on the other hand, diversity is associated with social non-cohesiveness, lack of trust, and consequently, it reduces productivity. And this implies that societies that are either very diverse, or very homogeneous, would not perform as well as societies that have an intermediate level of diversity. Now, since this level of diversity, to a large extent, was determined during the migration of anatomically modern humans from Africa 60 to 90,000 years ago, it implies that, to a large extent, migratory distance from Africa and its impact on diversity is an important factor in explaining the variations across the globe today. Namely, those societies that migrated to a certain distance from Africa may be in the sweet spot level of diversity in terms of productivity. And what I show in the book and in my earlier research is that in the Middle Ages, the optimal level of diversity was among societies such as China, Korea, and Japan. Societies that we typically do not identify with a level of diversity that is conducive for development. But this is a different time period. It's a time period in which the impact of homogeneity on social cohesiveness is much more important than the potential adverse effect of homogeneity on innovativeness. So these societies are balancing between the two in an optimal fashion. But as we move into the modern world, and as, in fact, technological progress becomes much more demanding, societies that are more diverse are able to make the adaptation, the adaptation to the new environment. And as a result of it, we see that the upper hand, in terms of the level of diversity, is shifting to the US and European societies that are balancing now better the, the, this trade-off uh, between diversity and productivity. And as we move further into the future, the prediction of uh, the journey of humanity, or my prediction more generally, is such that, in fact, the level of diversity that will be conducive for development will increase further, partly because technology continues to evolve very rapidly, and diversity will be very important in allowing individuals and societies to cope with these changes. But in addition, Because the education system, particularly in the Western world, is designed to mitigate the cost of diversity by by educating people to respect one another, to respect pluralism, to respect other social groups, etc. And consequently, since the cost of diversity are declining and the benefit of diversity are increasing, the prediction for the future is that more and more diverse societies, in fact, will have the upper hand in terms of productivity in the future
0: the obligatory question when talking about the deep rap the deep factors of economic growth is if everything is endogenous are we predestined to our given outcomes how can we change our fates you previously were talking about the scope of policy about actually alleviating the pressures of the Maltusian trap and helping some countries to transition and you also talk about how education may impact, but in general, could you actually elaborate on why, what is the scope, the proper scope of policy in this type of world? So, so the book
1: that I just released, The Journey of Humanity, that was released in Penguin Random House in the US and will be released uh, simultaneously in 30 different languages, is in fact advancing a very important message. It suggests that unlike the common policies that were implemented in the past, which was one policy that fits all societies, policies that were reflected by the Washington Consensus at the time, the policies that should be adopted are very different. The policies should be country-specific policies, history-specific policies. Namely, we have to understand the heritage of each society, the geographical endowment, the diversity endowment, the institutional endowment, and the cultural endowment, and we have to design policies that will mitigate those forces that generated a hurdle in the process of development. So in fact, rather than suggesting historical determinism, or perhaps geographical determinism, the journey of humanity suggests a great amount of hope. It suggests to us that if we understand our history better, we will be able to design policies that could mitigate inequality across the globe. And let me give you a very simple example. Suppose that we take two societies. One of them is incredibly diverse and the other one is incredibly homogeneous. The World Bank will approach these two societies and will tell the societies, educate your population, be engaged in family control, these are wonderful policies, but this is not an effective use of resources. In what sense? These two societies are different. One of them is extra- exceptionally diverse. The other one is exceptionally homogeneous. For an exceptionally diverse society, the education system, the curriculum, should target respect for pluralism, respect for different differences, respect for other ethnic groups, generating social cohesiveness. A lot of the curriculum should be geared towards educating children how to respect one another and how to form cohesiveness in a place where cohesiveness is lacking. But if you take in another another society, society that is very homogeneous, then there we would like to adopt an entirely different policy. We would like, in fact, the curriculum to be such the children will be taught how to challenge the status quo, how to think outside of the box, how to create diversity in a place where it's lacking. So again, it's not one. I mean, educate your children 8 years, 10 years, 12 years. Generally, it is about the curriculum that has to be respectful of the history of each particular nation. And this is true in the context of diversity, or this can be true in the context of growth-enhancing cultural traits. If we know that some regions of the world were not blessed by certain growth-enhancing cultural traits because of the geographical endowment, the curriculum should emphasize this element that is lacking. If it's a lack of future-oriented mindset, then again, educate children how to learn to delay gratification and how to be future-oriented. And this cannot be universal policies because some societies in the world, in fact, were blessed with disabilities because of their geographical endowment, and their resources can be applied more um, more effectively into other policies. So again, the main lesson is that history can teach us how to design the policies for the future, and second, that these policies must be country-specific, history-specific, not one policy, that would fit all nations at once.
0: Following on that, I would like to end our talk by discussing what lies in the future. Very gloomy debates on economics have ar- arisen that point towards potential economic stagnation. Total factor productivity change rates have declined all around, and the population is projected to peak in the coming decades. Is this the end of economic growth? Is there a potential to regress to a Malthusian world?
1: That's not my view. It, uh, theoretically, of course, uh, the, the, the potential for reversion into a Malthusian world is present. But practically, I think we reach a stage in which uh, technology evolves very gradually. And even if uh, there will be some technological slowdown, which I do not think will happen down the road, but even if there will be technological slowdown, the amount of resources that will have to be committed to educate each individual so as to reach the technological frontier, even if the technological frontier will not move very rapidly, will be so large that I cannot see a situation in which fertility rates will will return to what existed earlier, and consequently, population growth will counterbalance potential gains in productivity. So broadly speaking, I think that what we will see in the course of the coming decades is in fact technological progress that is not slower than what we see at the, pro- at the present. But as I said, even if we will see um, a productivity slowdown, it will be accompanied by greater emphasis on quality of children, on human capital, that will ultimately feed back into technology and will prevent us from reverting into a Malthusian world. So, in fact, my view of the future is quite hopeful. I think, in fact, we will be able to sustain the pace of technological progress, perhaps even move beyond that. And I don't expect the world to revert into a Malthusian world. I think that, in fact, if anything, the world will see a gradual decline in the absolute size of the population, which will be great news for the environment, in the sense that it will uh, it will slow down the current trend of uh, of climate change. And at the same time, we will see Great innovations in all aspects of societies, including environmentally friendly technologies and potentially revolutionary technologies that can perhaps uh, allow humanity to avert the potential catastrophes associated with climate change.
0: Well, thank you very much for the enlightening discussion of that, and congratulations on writing this super important book.
1: Thank you very much, I'm delighted to participate in this.
0: Global concerns about comparative economic development, and growth and inequality in general, cannot be properly assessed without attending the core foundations that have shaped human history. Population size, population composition, and technological change are the main factors that lie at the center of humanity's journey. Any given event, such as the industrial revolution, as important as it was, it is just that, an event that should be framed with respect to these larger time span deep factors. Professor Galore Newest book, The Journey of Humanity, is an essential reading to understand why growth matters and why history matters. Has been Penn's Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact based, and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga, and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as PennExchange. Stay tuned.